Well, General Petraeus, let me begin by asking you point blank. Did the U.S. just lose the war in Afghanistan? General Petraeus and I were able to spend some time this morning discussing the way forward. I'm extraordinarily grateful that he has agreed to serve in this new capacity. Uh, thank you all. Please be seated. Thanks for coming in on a icy day. I have just finished a conversation with General David Petraeus. He gave me his first briefing from Iraq. I should note again that like Ambassador Crocker, I believe Iraq's problems will require a long-term effort. There are no easy answers or quick solutions. It will take time. Our assessments underscore, in fact, the importance of recognizing that a premature drawdown of our forces would likely have devastating consequences. This morning, the committee considers the nomination of General David H. Petraeus to be commander of the NATO International Security Assistance Force, ISAF, and Commander, United States Forces, Afghanistan. When confirmed, you will bring highly experienced leadership and a profound understanding of the President's strategy in Afghanistan, which you helped shape as Commander, U.S. Central Command. Senator McCain. And let me thank our distinguished witness for joining us here today for a very unexpected and extraordinary hearing. General Petraeus, I believe you are one of our finest ever military leaders. We're all grateful for your willingness to answer the call of service again in yet another critical mission. You're an American hero, and I am confident that you will be quickly and overwhelmingly confirmed. General David Petraeus has formally assumed command of 130,000 international forces in Afghanistan. We must demonstrate to the Afghan people and to the world that Al-Qaeda and its network of extremist allies will not be allowed to once again establish sanctuaries in Afghanistan. Throughout history, different American generals have become iconic of each major conflict. In World War II, General Douglas MacArthur became the public face of the Allied war effort in the Pacific. His counterpart in Europe, Dwight Eisenhower, went on to win two consecutive landslide presidential victories, wins that have only ever been eclipsed by Ronald Reagan. Of the military commanders whose names are now indelibly printed on the historical record of the first two major conflicts of the 21st century, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, among the most prominent is General David H. Petraeus. War is full of mistakes, full of incredible loss, tragedy, heartbreak, hardship, and casualties. American four-star General David Petraeus is credited with turning the tide at different times in both the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and for being instrumental in the creation of America's counterinsurgency doctrine, which formed the basis for NATO forces' overall strategy in both theaters. When he left the military, General Petraeus remained at the forefront of America's war on global terror as the director of the CIA. This is gonna be an outstanding team. It is a major national security shuffle. The man who brought a new counterterrorism strategy to the war in Afghanistan is the president's pick to head the nation's spy agency. The U.S. commander in Afghanistan, General David Petraeus. I have enormous respect for the men and women of the agency. I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of J.P. Morgan Chase. This is part four of a special series on the intersection on Afghanistan. Today, General Petraeus is a partner at private equity firm KKR and the chairman of the KKR Global Institute. We sat down at KKR's headquarters in New York City last Friday and began our discussion talking about how nice their new offices were. Okay, well, good morning, General Petraeus. Thanks very much for having me into your offices at KKR here in New York City today. 
I suspect the setting we're enjoying now that comes along with the big gig at KKR is a little more salubrious than what you were used to as the commander of the NATO forces in the Middle East. Is that right? Well, I was a commander of the U.S. forces in the Middle East, a commander of all coalition forces, uh, including U.S. in Iraq and Afghanistan. And yes, indeed, the, the view from the 79th floor of 30 Hudson Yards is pretty spectacular, and it uh, does indeed beat the view from some of our quote, offices uh, in Baghdad and Kabul. <laughs> it even beats the view at the old KKR offices. In my former life, I was a banker at JP Morgan and I used to spend a bit of time up at the office on 57th Street, but it's an, even an upgrade on that. To begin, could you tell us a little bit about your role as uh, at KKR at the moment and particularly as the chairman of the KKR Global Institute? Yeah, so I've been with KKR for 10 years, Jack. Um, I was brought in to establish the KKR Global Institute and to chair it uh, to do assess geopolitical risk uh, during the diligence process while we're looking at potential investments uh, to identify those and then also more importantly to determine if they can be sufficiently mitigated so that we can have successful investments. Uh, and this has become increasingly important over the last 10 years as the world has evolved from one of benign globalization to renewed great power rivalries. I'm also a partner at, in the firm uh, with the responsibilities that that entails. Um, and again, as I mentioned, I've been with the firm for about a decade now, during which we have grown from $83 billion in assets under management to over $500 billion. Yeah, wow. Those sort of risks that you talk about managing within the portfolio, it seems to me like geopolitical risks and externalities are becoming a bigger part of the picture in the last few years, um, which probably suits you quite well in that seat, I imagine. Well, it's they have become vastly more important. Again, when I first joined KKR, geopolitical risk was something you examined when you were investing, say, in former Yugoslavia for the first time or Ethiopia or Vietnam. But now, geopolitical risk is present in vastly more situations because of the transformation of the global situation, again, from one of benign globalization. In other words, in which barriers to trade, investment, economic activity were generally going down, being reduced, uh, and globalization in terms of global trade was just going up exponentially. Uh, to a world in which those barriers are being reimposed, and we see tariffs, entities lists in which you cannot invest, uh, export controls, high-end microchips being very significant in that regard, and a variety of other concerns, including the likelihood of an outbound investment regime in the United States and pro probably in some other countries as well. So now we're trying to ensure that we not only invest legally always as well, uh, but also responsibly, uh, we want to pass the front page of the Washington Post test as well as be in line with the ever-changing laws, policies, uh, and various regulations that govern what it is we can do around the world and that have an effect on where we might invest and the expected outcome of those investments. Yeah. Makes sense. H how would you compare working in the senior management of the world's largest private equity firm versus the senior command of the world's most powerful army? Well, first of all, I should note, we're not the largest. I think there's at least one uh, that is larger than we are. Uh, although again, private equity firms aren't just private equity anymore. As I mentioned, they're also in real assets, at real estate, energy, credit, um, capital markets, you name it. So they're vastly bigger than just what we used to think of as a private equity firm, say 15, 20 years ago. Um, but what's interesting is that certainly when it comes to leadership in particular, the, the principles of this, the big ideas about the tasks of a strategic leader in particular, you, you have to get the big ideas right, you have to get the strategy right, you have to communicate it effectively to the breadth and depth of the organization and to all other stakeholders, clients, whatever it may be. You have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. That's what we often think of as leadership. That's providing energy inspiration. It's attracting the very best and brightest, retaining them, allowing others to move on more rapidly. It's the metrics uh, that you track and making sure they're very valid. Uh, it is how you spend your time, your battle rhythm, and so forth, determining that in considerable detail. And then a very important fourth task which is to determine how you need to refine the big ideas and do it again and again and again. 
for what it's worth, the senior leaders, the co-founders of KKR, Henry Kravis and George Roberts, and now the new co-CEOs, uh, Scott Nuttall and Joe Bay, are really impressive in performing the four tasks of a strategic leader. Uh, and this is how the firm has grown, as I noted, from $83 billion under management just 10 years ago to over half a trillion dollars under management now. Uh, it's constant evolution. Uh, it's sometimes admitting that something is not going as well as we hoped it would and just ending it. Uh, there's a real ability to do that here uh, that's very, very impressive. So, and this is, these are, of course, the same qualities that are necessary um, in combat leadership. Uh, again, you definitely have to get the big ideas right. If you think of the surge in Iraq, the surge that mattered most was not the 25 or 30,000 additional forces. It was the change in big ideas. It was the surge of ideas, as we say, which were 180 degrees different uh, from what it was we were doing before. I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than that. There's no change management greater than completely reversing what it was you were doing before. And then you have to communicate that effectively. You have to explain why that is, you know, in, especially in the kinds of wars we were in, we had what we termed the strategic lieutenants and strategic sergeants who are carrying out tactical actions that can have strategic uh, implications, especially if it doesn't go well. So they have to understand what's in the mind of the four-star at the top. And I, I put out my own counterinsurgency guidance, a whole series of admonitions about secure and serve the people. We have to do that by living with them. We're going back into the neighborhoods. We're taking back control from the Iraqis. We can't kill or capture our way out of an industrial strength insurgency. We have to reconcile with as many of the rank and file, 103,000 ultimately, of rank and file insurgents and militia members pursue even more relentlessly the irreconcilables, the leaders of al-Qaeda in Iraq, the Sunni insurgent movements, the Iranian-supported Shia militia. And I would lay that out uh, so that all of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and civilians, hundreds of thousands of them, we had 165,000 just American men and women in uniform, not to mention the coalition, and then uh, the number of civilians was more than the number uh, m contractors, it was actually more than the number of soldiers that we had from the U.S. So, um, all of this, these tasks, these big ideas, this is what it's all about. And communicating that effectively, uh, then, of course, overseeing the implementation of that, driving the implementation of the campaign plan through a variety of different uh, mechanisms, means, uh, how, you, again, events that you schedule for yourself to enable you, to force you actually to perform your responsibilities, to see it for yourself, occasionally share risk and hardship uh, with your men and women in uniform and, and all the rest of that. Uh, and then formally sitting down to determine how you need to refine the big ideas. The lesson's not learned until it's incorporated in the big ideas, put into a mission statement, campaign plan, annex, or what have you, communicated, and then actually implemented. So you can see this cycle, and this is very s much the same in the civilian world. So that process of constant review of from the the, the high level to the um, you know to drilling down more closely is important in both theaters. Crucial, absolutely crucial. Yep. Well, let's move on to the main area of our sort of discussion today, which is going to be about Afghanistan, but also the Ukraine war and some discussion about what's happening with China in Asia. But to begin, could I ask you to give us a brief summary of your career in the military that led to your four star role? And perhaps focus in on the moments and experiences that were most formative for you in ultimately attaining the top job. Well, there are many, many events, activities, uh, experiences that develop you, that allow you to be prepared for an opportunity should it come along. And I've often noted that, you know, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And I'd like to think that I spent a lifetime, a career, preparing for these opportunities that did come along. Um, and, you know, you could do that and they don't come along, but if they do, you want to be ready. Uh, and so, you know, there was a lifetime of study, a lot of it on my own, certainly facilitated by professional development courses that you go through, you know, West Point, then the basic course, eventually the advanced course, staff college, work college, and even beyond that. Uh, I detoured, did two years at Princeton, did a PhD in a combination of international relations and economics, taught those subjects for a couple of years at West Point, had some incredible vantage point jobs. Uh, by that, I mean you're, you're at the elbow of someone who's very significant, watching that individual 
perform his or her task. So I was the executive officer, the chef de cabinet, if you will, for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for two years. I was a speechwriter for the Supreme Allied Commander Europe and NATO, aide to the chief of staff of the Army for two very important years as well. And it gives you an incredible opportunity, again, to watch others performing senior leadership roles, just in case you might be in those positions later on. Um, I tried to, to pick subjects to study that would help me develop intellectual capital on which I could draw if and when the moment came. So my dissertation uh, at Princeton was on the American military and the lessons of Vietnam. And, and among those was that we really didn't get the strategy right in Vietnam for many, many years, if at all. Um, but during this career, again, then I obviously also had repetitive commands uh, at every level and often would get opportunities again to see the kinds of irregular warfare that actually we ended up uh, carrying out in Iraq and in Afghanistan. So I spent a summer in Central and South America again, as a speechwriter for the, the commander-in-chief of U.S. Southern Command, saw the, the counterinsurgency campaign being waged in El Salvador. We were, we were providing trainers and advisors, not actual fighters, but it was a very impressive campaign that had been developed. Uh, I was the U.N., not U.S., but the United Nations Force Chief of Operations uh, for Haiti, uh, stood that mission up and, and saw it through for a number of months after that. Um, I was a year in Bosnia where, yes, it was peacekeeping, but I, I was dual-hatted as a NATO and U.S., and in the U.S. side, I was the deputy commander of a clandestine joint task force doing manhunting, essentially. Mm -hmm. The war criminal hunt and Secretary Rumsfeld turned us loose. We got more war criminals in one year than we'd gotten in all the previous years. Uh, and then we did the first counterterrorism operations after 9-11. Actually, it was in Sarajevo, not in, uh, in Afghanistan with that same force because they were so incredibly capable. And so all of these, by the time I actually end up as a two-star commander of the 101st Airborne Division doing the fight to Baghdad and then the first year in Iraq, ultimately north in Mosul, um, I had a pretty good idea of what it was we needed to do. Didn't need a great deal of guidance, frankly, from above, which was good because we didn't get a great deal of that, frankly. Um, and many of the commanders in the 101st had similar backgrounds. We were light infantry by and large, uh, and had the kind of experiences that came from these different missions, which tended to be more on the light infantry side of the spectrum than those that were on the more heavy, say, armor uh, and mechanized. So um, very fortunate in that regard. Uh, we were able to design a campaign plan uh, in Mosul that succeeded quite impressively. Uh, we did do reconciliation, even after the uh, coalition provisional authority had uh, threw out all the Ba'ath Party members and created tens of thousands of Iraqis whose incentive was to uh, oppose the new Iraq rather than support it, coming right after having fired the entire Iraqi military without telling them what their future was. So again, the first year in Iraq that seemed to go reasonably well in our area at the least, um, I guess that got some attention from Secretary Rumsfeld and others because within a couple of months of returning, I was sent back over to do an assessment in the wake of a collapse of the Iraqi security forces in all areas except for where we were. Uh, I came back with recommendations, gave them to the secretary. Uh, he said, terrific. I want you to implement them. We'll promote you to three stars. You can establish the organization to do essentially train and equip. It became the Multinational Security Transition Command Iraq and then also NATO training mission Iraq. We built an ex enormous operation to, to reestablish the Iraqi ministries of interior and of defense and of all the elements that are within them. And this is very substantial numbers. It's far more than just sort of Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and police. It's, it's many, many other elements that are required. Uh, schools, centers, police academies, infrastructure, bases, and so forth. Uh, and that went reasonably well, and it was 15 and a half months. On the way home from that, I was asked to come through Afghanistan uh, and to give the secretary my assessment of that. I noted that Afghanistan was going to be the longest of the long wars because the conditions there were so much more challenging than Iraq, with the exception of the level of violence in Iraq was already much greater than that in Afghanistan. Well, that's very interesting because I think there's a propensity for civilians to acquire the Iraq and Afghanistan theaters um, in a way which perhaps isn't accurate. Could you tell us a bit more about 
the difference between those two war zones and why Afghanistan was a much harder problem to solve. But the fact that you have sanctuary for the those fighting us in Pakistan and that the Pakistanis wouldn't do anything about the Taliban and the Haqqani Network, Islamic movement of Uzbekistan and others that were on their soil, but were making life so difficult increasingly uh, in Afghanistan. The fact that Afghanistan had no real source of revenue, it had no real economy the way uh, Iraq had an extraordinary energy economy if it could keep the pipelines from being blown up and the electrical lines transmitting uh, electricity. Uh, level of illiteracy was very, very high in Afghanistan, very low uh, in Iraq. Infrastructure quite substantial in Iraq, very limited in Afghanistan. And of course, Afghanistan is a larger country with the Hindu Kush mountains running through the spine of the country, whereas Iraq was smaller uh, and again, generally much uh, flatter with the population largely concentrated around the, the two major rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates, and also a handful of others. So again, the, the differences were very pronounced. It took us nine years to get the inputs right in Afghanistan, nine years. That's fascinating. So from that lens, um, let's sort of drill in and, and focus on Afghanistan now. Um, so, I mean, you're credited with, with turning the tide at different points in time in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, can you describe what parts of your counterinsurgency doctrine were most effective in Afghanistan? Um, and also any sort of, in hindsight, strategic errors that you believe that you may have made or any decisions that you would change if you had your time again in Afghanistan sure. specifically? Um, first, I think, number one, I want to give credit to General Stan McChrystal, who preceded me in Afghanistan. I was the commander of U.S. Central Command at that time, so the whole region after having uh, commanded the surge in Iraq. Um, and he was the one who started the implementation of the big ideas, the right strategy. It was essentially had to be, there was no escaping this. It had to be a comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign. Again, you couldn't do this with just counter-terrorist forces because we weren't facing just terrorists. Um, there were terrorists. There were elements of al-Qaeda trying to reestablish themselves. There were certainly senior leaders of the insurgency and explosives experts and others who who needed to be targeted, who were irreconcilable. But what most was undermining security in Afghanistan was the actions of uh, insurgent groups. It was the Afghan Taliban, the Haqqani network who were in league with them, and then a handful of others like the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan and, and some others. Um, so you had to have a comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign, the essence of which had to be clear hold, not clear and hand off or clear and leave, clear hold, rebuild, uh, and gradually transition where you thin out, you don't hand off and you maintain some presence. You just reduce it considerably. And ideally you push out farther from that with host nation security forces uh, taking over from your forces. Um, so that's the biggest of the big ideas. There's a lot of other components to that uh, in across the board in building not just the Afghan national security forces of all different types, uh, the infrastructure to support them, the training facilities, the academies, the police, the but also prisons, the other elements of the rule of law, the judicial system, uh, and then getting into the civil infrastructure, the governance that was really necessary. Again, these aren't nice to have activities that we were doing. Um, and then, of course, as you make, make progress in security areas, you solidify that progress, but what you do in other respects. It's by restoring uh, basic services to the people. It's by repairing and reopening local markets. It's patching up the, the, the roads, repairing the bridges. Um, it's getting local schools going again. It's getting electricity. It's all of these other elements that convince the people that they'll be better off if they support us and then ultimately the new Afghanistan rather than supporting those who are opposing it, yeah. uh, the Taliban. Uh, and again, this is very, very complex. There's numerous elements of that that are challenging to this. As to, you know, what should we have done differently? Well, number one is we should have gotten the inputs right as soon as we could very early on. What I've just described, as opposed to delaying, 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 
now I was part of the problem because once you focus on Iraq, which happens very quickly after the initial invasion of Afghanistan and the toppling of the Taliban and elimination of the Al-Qaeda uh, sanctuary in which the 9-11 attacks were conducted, the whole reason for going to Afghanistan, of course, um, we shifted focus to Iraq and then Iraq became the country, the focus of the military as Admiral Mullen, the great chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, used to observe in Iraq, we do what we must. In Afghanistan, we do what we can. And frankly, as the commander of the surge in Iraq, when I was asked, what would I need if I was going to command that? I said, everything we have that's not committed. And I knew what it was. It was five Army Brigade combat teams and two Marine battalions and the Marine Expeditionary Unit. And we got all of it. We then were able to draw down in Iraq. We were able to hand off in a very orderly manner. And indeed, the level of violence, which we had driven down by nearly 90% during the surge, stayed down and actually continued to go down a little bit more over the next three and a half years until tragically we withdrew our combat forces and the prime minister undid what we had done together uh, with highly sectarian actions appealing to the Shia base in advance of an election that he was hoping to win. Um, and that undid and it tore apart the fabric of society that we'd all tried to stitch back together between Sunni and Shia uh, in particular. Again, in Afghanistan, um, you had to conduct a comprehensive civil military counterinsurgency campaign. The question was just how much will you get in terms of resources to enable you to do that? Uh, General McChrystal said the minimum requirement was 40,000 additional U.S. We got 30 with a little bit of overage. Um, and is there a bit of horse trading in that sort of discussion internally? Like when a general says he needs 40, is he, does he really need 30? Is no, no, we didn't, you know, we didn't, we deliberately didn't. You don't inflate with an expectation that elected politicians will. Not yeah. at all. No, no, no. I mean, this is, we laid out what he did a very exhaustive, detailed troop to task analysis. My headquarters, you know, examined it as well, agreed. Um, I supported it very strongly. So did the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense. It's a presidential decision not to provide all that. president has factors beyond those of our purview, if you will. And again, that's why the president is the one who makes the decision at the end of the day. And then our job is to do everything we can to accomplish the mission set out for us uh, with the means that are provided. And I'd just add that the mission when I assumed command in Afghanistan of U.S. and NATO forces was to halt the momentum of the Taliban, to roll it back in select locations, beginning in the southwest and the south, uh, to take advantage of that time and space created to accelerate the development of the Afghan security forces and key institutions to which we needed to transition tasks over time, develop the the policy, the, the, the program to determine how you conduct uh, the, this transition of tasks, and then to initiate that transition, uh, all while ensuring the overriding objective uh, is still accomplished, which is that al-Qaeda cannot reestablish a sanctuary on Afghan soil similar to the one that they enjoyed under the Taliban when the 9-11 attacks were planned there and the initial training of the attackers was conducted there. And we did accomplish those missions. The challenge was that during the speech in which the president announced the buildup, there was also an announcement of when the drawdown would begin. Uh, and this put enormous pressure. Uh, and I think when it comes to mistakes, in some cases, we rushed certain activities, including some in the investment world and so forth, we had a lot of resources. We said, let's use it all while we have the troops because we know that we're going to have to start drawing down in the summer of 2011. So do everything we possibly can now before that begins because it's going to get tougher after that time. We probably, having under-resourced Afghanistan for nine years, um, by that point in time, now we probably rush too much on certain projects just to try to accomplish them while we had the boots on the ground. Because again, it's security that creates the foundation that enables you to conduct these other programs. But in so doing, if you throw too many resources at a country with a, the absorptive capacity of Afghanistan, which was not as substantial as that, say, in Iraq, um, then you can start to foster uh, challenges with corruption, 
Uh, you can, there's political nepotism that is enabled. There's a whole host of second and third order effects uh, that can result from that. But at the end of the day, again, having not gotten the inputs right for the first nine years, and we only kept them right for about six, eight months uh, after that, uh, that was the challenge. And that was really exemplary of the larger issue, which was that we never had strategic commitment that was consistent even within an administration, such as the Bush administration, which decided to go in, but then shifted focus to Iraq and came back to Afghanistan literally in its final six months. The Obama administration, again, built up, but then drew down, actually tried to pull everything out at one point and then realized that would have been disastrous. The Trump administration, which built up for two years and then built down and did this disastrous agreement uh, to withdraw. And then the Biden administration, which reversed many other of the Trump administration's uh, foreign policy actions, including, you know, the withdrawal from World Health Organization, from the climate change uh, convention in Paris, all of these others. But not this one. But not this one. And decided to honor this one. And then obviously the execution of that left something to be desired. Well, let's um, let's touch on that uh, that specific point. So if we think about the initial negotiated agreement with the Taliban, if you take into account its conception, its execution, its outcome, and any unintended consequences that flowed from it, is there any other American foreign policy error in modern history which is commensurate in its failure to the Doha Agreement? Well, if we're talking about diplomatic agreements, I'm sure that you could look at other policy decisions and and argue that they were um, left again left something to be desired as well. But in terms of diplomatic agreements, um, no, I think it's it's I I can't think of anything that ranks with this in in the, that respect. Um, again, we basically gave the enemy what the enemy wanted, which was our withdrawal. Um, in return for very little, if anything, maybe they agreed not to attack us on the way out. Mm-hmm. But the truth is we weren't on the front lines anymore anyway. So they, we hadn't had a casualty in at the end by 18 months until the tragic suicide bombing at the gate to the airport in Kabul during the withdrawal. Yeah. Um, I argued at the time that the policy is actually sustainable. You know, we still have 29,000 troops uh, in Korea, for example. Yes, it's not an active war zone the way that uh, Afghanistan was. Yes, Afghanistan is frustrating. Yes, the security has been eroding. Yes, it's our partners are not all that we might like them to be at some times. Yes, there are issues of corruption and, again, political uh, actions and so forth. But at the end of the day, my view was that that was a better situation and it wasn't costing us much in terms of blood and treasure. Again, we hadn't had a casual, a, a battlefield loss in 18 months and $25 billion or whatever it was costing us to support the Afghan government its security forces and other activities and our activities uh, was more than affordable given a defense budget of some $800 million billion a year. Mm. So um, again, and that was preferable to what I feared would happen, which is essentially what did happen, which... Uh, weeks before the ultimate collapse, I said that I feared a psychological collapse of the Afghan security forces, not just because we had withdrawn and we underestimated what an impact it was on them to see us withdraw, but because we withdrew our 17,000 Western contractors who maintained the sophisticated U.S. uh, rotary and fixed-wing air assets that were the critical enabler Mm. to the Afghan defense strategy. It's inescapable that in a circumstance like that, you are going to have modestly trained and equipped forces protecting uh, population centers and infrastructure all around the country because that's what the Taliban is attacking. And when they come under attack, what they have to do is withstand it for long enough that the 30,000 plus Afghan commandos who are well-trained and well-equipped uh, could deploy out there on these sophisticated U.S. planes and helicopters. I actually resisted uh, providing the U.S. helicopters and argued that we should continue to get them uh, old Soviet, uh, the Soviet or Russian uh, systems, which they knew how to operate. They were analog. They were very easy to maintain for them, and they'd used them for decades. 
as opposed to these very uh, sophisticated with diagnostic tools and equipment and digital cockpits and everything else that were in the Black Hawk helicopters. And predictably, the contractors withdrew. They tried to do maintenance by, uh, you know, video call and this kind of thing, which is just not possible. With translators, of course, in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? Uh, and uh, so the readiness of these aircraft degraded very rapidly. Yeah. And once the troops realize that there's no one coming to the rescue and that their local political leaders are cutting deals with the Taliban and text messages, why are they going to continue to fight? Again, the helicopters and the fixed wing were the key to providing reinforcements, um, emergency resupply, often close air support, the fixed wing in particular, but also the rotary wing with the door guns, uh, and then uh, also air medevac. So again, if that's not coming, what is going to keep those soldiers uh, fighting? And so, you know, there have been various uh, critiques that we should have had a force that looked more like the Taliban. Well, the Taliban were the insurgents. They didn't have to defend fixed locations and infrastructure. Again, so... Um, but I think your point, which is that maintaining a residual force would have been incredibly helpful in keeping the spigot open for contracting support. Well, for everything. For everything. You know, that's such an important... The security had been eroding, but no major city had actually been taken and held by the Taliban. There were one or two that were taken, and then the Afghans uh, re retook them, liberated them, if you will. Um, and I think that was doable. Perhaps you add a, a good bit, many more drones, uh, some more intelligence surveillance, reconnaissance, and precision strike, which does not expose our young men and women uh, to the enemy, but does support the Afghan forces. And that was what was really critical. And again, looking at what happened and the disastrous outcome, um, I think that you can certainly make an argument that that would have been a better alternative. Yeah. For sure. So another aspect to this projection of U.S. interests and force without risking as much as many American lives came up in the testimony you gave to the House Intelligence Committee not so long ago. What struck me as a, a clear central tenant in, that ran through your remarks was that you think that more resources need to be redirected to the CIA, or perhaps not even redirected, but just directed both in terms of funding and the training of senior personnel. When you advocate for that, does that follow from your experience of the work that the CIA does with indigenous forces in places like Afghanistan with the counterterrorism pursuit teams, these sorts of groups? And looking forward, are they going to be more or less critical than they have been in the past in prosecuting American foreign policy abroad? Well, there's two different issues here, actually. One has to do with how should we, whenever possible, engage in irregular warfare. So this is counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, et cetera, which is going on still. This is never going to stop. I mean, we're, we rightly are shifting our focus to, and the resources and emphasis to the Indo-Pacific and deterring a possible conflict between the world's two superpowers. That is the most important task uh, in the world for our military and, frankly, for our government writ large, because it should be a whole of government, with, actually with an S on the end, with our allies and partners in there as well, and Australia being a very important one of those. So that's uh, that aspect. But that has to do, again, with how we engage in irregular warfare, which we will have to do. Uh, we may not like counterinsurgency, but you're still going to have to engage in it. We are. We still have forces in northern Syria, in Iraq, in Somalia, in other places in Africa, in other places in, in Asia, and so forth. But what we need to do, and this is not just the province of the CIA, it's the province of the U.S. military, and not just the special forces either, because it takes more than they can provide. This is to provide, it's, it's what's called an advise, assist, and enable mission. So you provide advisors, provide assistance in a variety of different ways. It could include training and equip as well. And then you provide enablers. This is the intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance assets, many of them unmanned, some that are manned, and the precision strike assets that truly are the game changer in these kinds 
uh, of, of endeavors, such as when we were helping uh, the Iraqi security forces and the Syrian democratic forces uh, eliminate the Islamic State caliphate and their forces that were basically an army, and then subsequently to pursue them when they broke down and became insurgents and terrorist groups uh, again. So this is a hugely important uh, element. And the U.S. Army, for example, has recognized this and created five security force assistance brigades. So they've taken entire brigades, uh, and, but instead of being 3,500 uh, soldiers or so, roughly, uh, they're much smaller because what they're doing is they're not doing the fighting on the front lines. They're doing the advise, assist, and enable tasks. And that is very, very important. And yet they can do it on a scale that is much greater than that capable uh, of our special forces, uh, our Green Berets, for example, and their Marine counterparts, uh, just because of the sheer size of what uh, the Army can do. The CIA has a role in this. You discussed some of that. I won't go into that. It's covered under covert action. Um, but that's a role. What I was really getting at, though, was that unlike all of the other intelligence elements in the intelligence community, all the rest of which are military in some fashion, including the NSA, although it has a large number of civilian national security agency being, of course, our signals and now cyber uh, intelligence organization, they all benefit from the military's professional development uh, programs. So again, as I described earlier, you have a basic course, an advanced course, a staff college, a war college, and you have that for the commissioned officers. You have a similar program for warrant and non-commissioned officers. And my argument was that we need to invest particularly in the national clandestine service officers who, after they do their onboarding for the agency, which is very considerable, and do their early courses, very seldom get an opportunity to do what it is that we provide for in the military. So it's about professional development and investing more in our most important uh, capability in the CIA in particular, which is our human capital. Uh, and so that's what I was really arguing for there. And, and, and since on that committee, uh, you had Abigail Spanberger, who's a former CIA officer, uh, and perked up very visibly during that particular part of my testimony. Uh, I'm hoping that she will be uh, identified as the person to take this forward for the House uh, Select Committee on Intelligence. Yeah. Well, so the reason I ask about the importance of, of those sorts of partner force operations around the world going forward is that part of the rushed withdrawal and the uh, decision to make a full exit, part of the, the negative consequences of that have flown directly to some of those partner forces, sure. both the ones that are left in Afghanistan. But recently, I've, I've also met some of the guys that did uh, get moved across to the United States in, in a fairly ad hoc process um, based on relationships that they had with, with senior intelligence and military officials from their time fighting. And these guys are struggling. I mean, they're, they're not being, they haven't had their special immigration visas approved. There's been cases of suicide. And I just wonder from your perspective as somebody who's seen the bravery of these men and women in battle, I mean, how do you feel about the US government in general failing to, is what it looks like to me to, to effectively resettle these guys? I feel terrible about it. I think we have failed to meet what is a really profound moral obligation. Um, we told these individuals, if you serve initially, it was two years on the ground with our units, we will give you a special immigrant visa and we'll give one for each of your family members as well. Uh, and in the end of the day, we didn't meet that obligation. Uh, there were well over 20,000 uh, individuals who qualified for the special immigrant visa times four family members or more. So it's, again, it's somewhere around 150,000 Afghans literally left behind. And they're just coming out at a trickle. I'm on the board of No One Left Behind and some other organizations support them to help get these individuals out. And then, as importantly, to take care of them when they are here. And we have not done that adequately. Now, what is interesting and is publicly known is the CIA did get uh, its elements, its partner uh, Afghans and family members out there were some advantages that there was a base in which they could assemble outside Kabul. 
at helicopters to fly them in as opposed to having to try to get through uh, the gates that were obviously so chaotically crowded uh, and almost impenetrable. Uh, and then there was even a special gate that could be opened on very special occasions for the final few uh, uh, ground vehicle movements uh, once the helicopters were no longer being used. So that organization did do a very impressive job. Director Burns and his team deserve enormous credit for that. But frankly, we failed the others. And that's before we get into those who, to, for whom we should feel an obligation, our closest Afghan governmental partners, many of the leaders of the Afghan security forces who were fighting the Taliban, we didn't have a, the same obligation. We didn't tell them we're going to give you a special immigrant visa if you keep doing what you were doing. But, you know, they were on our side yeah. uh, and they were fighting for their country together with us. And as a result, their lives and the lives of their family members are in jeopardy as well. So, no, this is a very disappointing episode. Um, the fact that a policy decision was made that, again, didn't have to be made, uh, that, and then the execution of it obviously left a great deal to be desired, and it has repercussions. Because as you are seeking partners in the future, will they look at that historical episode and say, gosh, do I really want to throw in with the Americans, will they take care of me if this thing goes south or not? And we're going to have some hard work to do to show that we do. This is, by the way, where our support for Ukraine uh, is so important, not just for Ukraine and the Ukrainians and, the, and their independence, uh, but also, frankly, for the message that it sends around the world that the U.S. is still the global leader. It is still the indispensable partner uh, and that the U.S. can be counted on as a reliable ally and partner. Yeah, very important. And look, that's a good segue for us to pivot to Ukraine. So I'm not sure how well known it is that in 2007, you were the runner-up in Time Magazine's Person of the Year on account of your work in Iraq. But what makes it even more interesting to me is, is who you lost to, uh, Vladimir Putin. Now, <laughs> I also noted that the other runners, the other runners-up uh, that year were Al Gore, we all remember him. Chinese President Hu Jintao and J.K. Rowling. So it begs a fairly obvious question, right? Which is, what's your favorite Harry Potter book? <laughs> I've never even read a Harry oh, Potter oh. book. <laughs> the obvious question that it begs is, at that moment in time, what was your perception of Vladimir Putin? And what is your perception of him now? How has it changed? Well, I think now he is clearly a global pariah. Uh, he's a brutal, um, kleptocratic dictator who seemingly cares nothing about the lives of his soldiers on the battlefield, um, capriciously replaces commanders, um, hasn't got the big ideas right. He's, he's failed in, as a strategic leader. He got the big ideas wrong. He's been terrible at communicating them, at least outside the controlled ecosystem in Russia. Uh, he's overseen this in a miserable way, uh, and they don't seem to be learning. If anything, the Russian military is getting worse, not better, with a couple of exceptions, such as incorporating the use of Iranian drones and some other capabilities. But by and large, they're just conscripting huge numbers of Russian men, giving them minimal training poor equipment, and just throwing them into what are essentially human waves attacks. Um, so again, I, I think along with much of the rest of the free world at the least, I think he's a despicable individual. But what did you think of him at that point in time? Now, back then, there, there was still a sense that possibly this was someone with whom we could do business. Keep in mind that we had invested a lot in that relationship. George W. Bush had even driven him around on his ranch and all the rest of this. And even after that, uh, in early 2009, I'll, I was at the Munich Security Conference, and I think that was where new Secretary of State Hillary Clinton pressed the red reset button, indicating that we still thought that we could um, reestablish a productive relationship with Russia of the type that we dreamed of in the wake of the Cold War, when there was the NATO-Russia Council and also the NATO-Ukraine Council. I, when I was the 
exec to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I remember we flew all the way, I think, to, to, to Switzerland just to do dinner with his, or lunch, actually, with his Russian counterpart. I mean, he, we were working that relationship very, very hard, went to Russia during that period, uh, and so forth. So, again, there was still a sense for even a few years after 2007 that this was someone perhaps um, with whom we could establish a reasonable and productive relationship. And obviously that all came crashing down within a few years of that, at the very latest, uh, 2014, with the occupation of Crimea and the seizure of the southeastern part of the country known as the Donbass, and then a number of other episodes, whether it was the horrific use of air in, to support Bashar al-Assad when he was teetering on the throne, or prior to that, of course, the destruction of Grozny when they couldn't take it by other means, the support of a dictator in Libya, et cetera. So um, again, Russia deserves to be an international pariah. Um, it's sad that there's still some countries that are sitting on the sidelines um, or abstaining from voting in the UN General Assembly uh, when Russia has carried out this incredibly brutal and unprovoked invasion uh, of its neighbor, um, who Vladimir Putin clearly believes with his historical grievances and revision and ism and, and revanchism, uh, does not have a right to exist. Well, is it not worse than what you describe? Because I agree it's uh, shameful for, for states to abstain from condemning in strong terms his actions, but does it not feel like there actually is even a quite a powerful large block of countries, including China, Iran, that seem to be sort of firming up an allegiance. And, and I wonder whether you sense that there is a fracture in sort of world politics that is widening, where we are entering a period of great power competition. Sure, sure. There is something to that. Um, it is still in the nascent stages, but clearly you see countries in that block, if you will, resenting the rules-based international order that the U.S. and its allies and partners in the wake of World War II established and largely uh, has sought to sustain since then. And you see them trying to create uh, an alternative system uh, to undermine the dollar, to undermine U.S. authority, uh, to challenge uh, U.S. principles, uh, all of this. Uh, so yeah, there's no question about that. And to a considerable degree, countries in the so-called global south are waiting to see. They, many of them want to have a foot in both camps. Um, so you've seen a number of cases in which countries have done more visits to Beijing and Moscow than to Washington uh, in some recent years. So it, it's a dynamic that's out there. It's a reality. Um, the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, gave a speech earlier this week that I commend uh, to listeners because it laid out some of these develops in, in an economic sense, how this is starting to evolve. Uh, and this is the dynamic that's one of the many dynamics that is out there at a time of renewed great power rivalries. Yeah, absolutely. What are your expectations for the 2023 fighting season in Ukraine? Well, the first expectation is that Russia will not have achieved its winter offensive objectives. It's possible it still might take Bakhmut after sacrificing thousands and thousands of Russian soldiers for uh, a modest-sized city of no real geographic or uh, other significance. It's not a great communications hub. It doesn't have tremendous topography advantages. Uh, so that's possible, but they still will not have taken all the rest of Donetsk Oblast, or province, the way Vladimir Putin set out uh, as the key objective of the winter offensive. And then we will see what happens with the Ukrainian offensive. Uh, the Ukrainians having established nine additional brigades at the least of different types, some armor, some others, uh, that are not in the line right now. So they're going to be over the weeks that lie ahead, positioned, conditions will be established. 
They'll launch an offensive, and I think that they will achieve for the first time in this war on either side impressive combined arms effects where you see tanks, infantry, artillery, air defense, engineers, electronic warfare, command and control, logistics, and follow-on forces all orchestrated to work together uh, in a coordinated, synchronized manner and really terrifying the enemy. When this gets going, I've seen this in combat, especially during the fight to Baghdad and a few other occasions where we used all of the combat arms, and it is very, very significant. And in this case, unlike what happened uh, in the Battle of Kharkiv Oblast, not, not the city, but the province, there will be follow-on forces so that 72 or 96 hours into this offensive, you won't see a culmination uh, when troops just physically can't go any farther. They've taken losses, battle damage to the equipment, need for uh, rest and, and, and sort of replenishment. Now you're going to see follow-on forces push through them and maintain the momentum, exploit the uh, results achieved by the, the first-line elements in this offensive, and I think cracking the Russian defenses. And then the question is, how much do the Russians crumble or even more broadly collapse? Uh, and then what does that do in terms of beginning to convince Putin that contrary to his current uh, assessment, Russia will not be able to outsuffer the Ukrainians, the Europeans, and the Americans, and that this war is not sustainable for him either on the battlefield or on the home front, given the impact of economic, financial, personal sanctions and export controls. Yeah. And if they are able to get that combined arms effect together, does that put Crimea in play? Is there a scenario you can envisage where that could fall back into Ukrainian hands? I can envisage it. I don't know that it's the base case right now. I think what it does do, though, is it puts the air bases, naval bases, headquarters, logistical depots, barracks, and so forth in Crimea at risk. In other words, they will be within range of at least some of the longer-range precision munitions we have provided, and I would hope that we would provide the Army Tactical Missile System that would double the current range. So we started with systems that had about 80 kilometers, then we gave them ones that have 150 kilometers, the ATACMs would take them out to about 300 kilometers. So uh, if that's the case, then Crimea becomes no longer viable as a base the way it has been, as such an important base. And again, maybe that then creates the conditions where Russia might be willing to negotiate and Ukraine, which does want to be whole and free, that's their objective, including Crimea and the Donbass, but might be willing also to negotiate to get an end to this war, the nightly missile and drone strikes, the terrible losses on the battlefield, and a Marshall-like reconstruction plan from the US G7, and, and, and I hope frozen Russian funds used for that purpose, uh, as well as a security guarantee from a US-led a coalition of the willing or ideally of NATO, although that will take some time at best. So if you put all these, the dynamics on one side and the dynamics on the other, maybe then you actually can get to some kind of negotiated resolution without which at some point there might be a new frozen conflict with new front lines. And actually, if that's the case, Crimea will remain at risk because keep in mind that in the past, in the previous frozen conflict, Ukraine never attacked Russian assets in Crimea. Uh, and if you can cut off the ground bridge that Russia has established along the southeastern coast of Ukraine, so you, you sever that connection to Crimea, and then if you can take down the Kerch Strait Bridge again, or all of it this time, uh, and then even start to take out some of the ferries that will uh, be pressed back into service, then you make Crimea uh, very much in play. But then you're talking about a much longer period. And then there are other factors that you have to ask about, such as the sustained commitment, uh, again, of the US-led coalition. Absolutely. Well, General Petraeus, we're coming up against our time uh, limit here, but thank you very much for taking the time today. And we uh, we might have to try and circle up sometime in the future to dis discuss China and Taiwan, because we didn't get there today. Thanks, Jack. It'd be a pleasure. But before I end, uh, since many of your 
listeners are Australians. Uh, I feel compelled to note how privileged I was uh, as a general officer, in particular as a commander, uh, to have diggers uh, as part of these great organizations uh, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, and in some other missions as well over the years, and then with the intelligence services uh, also. Um, this is an extraordinary relationship. Uh, the mateship between Australians and Americans uh, is, is absolutely wonderful. Uh, and again, having been privileged in a way that no other American has in history to command Aussies in two wars, uh, I, I think it's very important to note how all Australians should be very proud of what their men and women in uniform have done, particularly over the last two decades or so. Well, that's that's a fantastic note to end on. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bet, that was part four of a new series on the intersection on Afghanistan. Stay tuned for the next episode coming in May. Until then, I'm Jack Wright. Thanks very much for listening.